Support comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies. Held on select Fridays in May, each film touches upon artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, kicking off with Pan's Labyrinth by Guillermo del Toro on May 10th at nortonsimon.org. Support for LAist comes from Pasadena Water and Power. Every individual's actions matter in preserving resources. Join the ripple effect to build a more resilient water future. Learn more about water programs, workshops, and ways to save at pwpweb.com slash the ripple effect. Good morning, it's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Great to be with you on this Monday, wherever you are in Southern California or listening around the world on the LAist app or at LAist.com. We have all kinds of great conversation coming up today. A little bit later, we'll be talking with listeners still deciding who they want to vote for, how they want to vote on particular ballot measures, and just be a chance for us to check in with each other, sort of see where we're at in that process. I do want to begin, though, with breaking news. Uh, the courts opened just uh, a few minutes ago in Oregon, and the federal government, through the Federal Trade Commission, filed a lawsuit just minutes ago to block the proposed merger between grocery giants Kroger and Albertsons. The FTC says the $24.5 billion deal would eliminate competition and lead to higher prices for millions of Americans. The FTC filed the lawsuit in U.S. District Court in Oregon. It's been joined in the suit by the attorneys general of eight states and the District of Columbia. Those states include California. Kroger and Albertsons are two of the nation's largest grocers. They agreed to merge in October of 2022. Kroger operates under the Ralph's and Food for Less banners in Southern California. Albertsons offers, uh, uh, operates under that name as well as Vons and Pavilion stores in Southern California. More details, I'm sure, to come at the top of the hour from NPR News. But we uh, start our full-on segment with a look at a new study focusing on the potential, not likelihood, want to be very careful to say this is not a likely event, but a potential one nonetheless, that with the warming climate and with accelerating melting of glacial ice, it could see a dramatic change in the system of currents in the Atlantic, and that could set off a cascade, causing severe disruption to weather, particularly in Europe, but also in other parts of the world. Joining us is environment reporter for the Los Angeles Times who wrote the piece that is in today's edition of the Times, Haley Smith. Haley, thank you for joining us. Hi, Larry. Thanks so much for having me. So this is one of those stories where um, the odds are not high that this would happen, but if it does, the impact is hard to overstate. Yeah, that's right. So this study is about the Atlantic Meridional Overturning Circulation, otherwise known as the AMOC. And it joins a growing body of work into the potential or the possibility of what would happen if the AMOC were to collapse. So you can think of the AMOC as a big 
conveyor belt that moves Atlantic Ocean currents from north to south and back again. It helps to redistribute heat and regulate global and regional climates. And if it were to suddenly and abruptly collapse, as this study shows is possible, it would be, as the researchers say, bad news for the climate system and humanity. And, and so some of the ways um, it appears that this would break down the way that that Western Europe has a fairly uh, temperate climate, for example, and that agriculture can thrive there. What what would be the potential impact if, if this system, uh, there's a tipping point reached, it's broken up, what would the effect be on the weather of Europe? Sure. So I, I, I want to add that this this study, um, there have been many researchers in the past who have hypothesized that the AMOC could collapse, but this was the first study to show through modeling that it could in fact happen. And if you remember the movie, The Day After Tomorrow, it's the same sort of setup as what played out in that film. Although of course that was very Hollywood, Hollywoodized version of this, but the implications depend a little bit on who you ask. What this model shows is that it would basically switch the conditions between the Northern and Southern hemisphere. So average temperatures in Europe would plunge about 18 degrees or even as much as 36 degrees in places like Norway and Scandinavia. It shows um, sea levels rising by as much as three feet in some places, including the east coast of the United States. So there would be lots of subsequent flooding in places like New York City. Um, It also shows that wet and dry seasons in the Amazon rainforest would flip. So it would likely lead that rainforest to its own sort of tipping point. Basically, this would create a kind of climate chaos that is very different from the changes we're experiencing now and the changes that we're finally starting to prepare for. And what could it mean potentially for Southern California? Yeah, so the effects on the Pacific Ocean and the West Coast of the United States would probably be smaller due to their distance from the Atlantic. But the researchers' model did show that an AMOC collapse could result in reduced precipitation in Los Angeles and slight cooling. Um, It would also affect the jet stream and the Pacific storm track, which is, you know, what helps steer storms and atmospheric rivers into California. But the gist is really, we don't we don't even know exactly what it would do other than it would create something very different than what we're used to. We're talking with Los Angeles Times environment reporter Haley Smith. Her piece titled Scientists Warn a Crucial Ocean Current Could Collapse Altering Global Weather. Also with us from the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, the NASA-operated facility in La Yada Flint Ridge, climate scientist Josh Willis, who was not involved in this study, but is that an opportunity to to look at it? Josh, thank you for being with us. What's the takeaway for you? Thanks, Larry. Well, to me, I think this study is a reminder that there's still a lot of these sort of tripwires in the climate that we're stumbling through as we heat up our planet. Now, the AMOC may shut down, Uh, In this study, they had to push the model really, really hard in order to get it to turn off. Uh, In fact, um, they had to add uh, the amount of freshwater equivalent to seven Greenlands in order to get all this stuff to happen. Now, in real life, we only have one Greenland, but it means that some of these really high numbers like 18 or 36 degrees of cooling in Europe 
probably aren't going to be quite that big if it really shuts down, but we could still be in for a wild ride. And is this a case where there's sort of it's on or it's off, there's a tipping point, uh, as opposed to it being a gradual change? Well, that's one of the things that's interesting about this paper is that uh, for the first time uh, in one of these models, the overturning didn't just kind of gradually shut down as you push it harder and harder. Uh, They pushed it a little, they pushed it a little more, and then all of a sudden it switched off. Um, Now, this has been hypothesized to happen, but it's the first time we've seen that particular kind of behavior in one of these more complicated models. Um, What's going to happen in real life? We'll see. And explain for us, Josh, if you would, how the melting of this glacial ice in large quantities has an effect on this uh, system of currents. Well, the overturning or conveyor belt, uh, as Haley uh, put it, um, is really something that depends on where the salt is in the ocean. Uh, The Atlantic is our saltiest ocean, and in the far northern parts, when storms blow over it, it cools rapidly, and because it's already salty, it's very heavy, and so it sinks very deep. Um, So really, for the overturning, it's all about where the salt is. And uh, that's, that's kind of what's potentially driving this. Um, and uh, as we add fresh water from melting ice in Greenland, then we make that water less salty, less likely to sink, and that's where the shutdown can happen. All right. And uh, did, when's the last time we saw this happened with the Atlantic. Do we have a way of, of establishing a historic record of, 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 um, of when that happened historically? Uh, well, between 10 and 20,000 years ago, uh, as we were heating up out of the last ice age, the overturning is thought to have shut down for a little while and caused some extra cooling. Uh, and again, this probably happened when ice was melting over North America. Of course, 20,000 years ago, a huge chunk of Canada and the United States was covered by an ice sheet two miles thick. As that melted, it dumped water into the Arctic and into the Atlantic and probably turned off this overturning circulation before. Well, what uh, what do you think are realistic odds that this could happen again as a result of, of ice uh, melting and uh, the desalinity of the Atlantic? Well, I think there's a really good chance that we're going to see a change in the overturning this century. Um, How big it's going to be is really the question. Uh, Almost every model of global warming shows some slowdown of the overturning. The question is just, um, is it going to be all of a sudden and catastrophic or kind of a gradual thing we can deal with? Um, And we won't really know till we get there. We're talking about the Atlantic Meridional Overturning Circulation, or EMAC, uh, the system of ocean currents in the Atlantic that have such a huge effect on global weather and even greater effect on Europe as uh, storms make their way eastward across the planet. If you have any questions for our guests, Haley Smith of the L.A. Times, who's environment reporter, or Josh Willis of NASA's JPL, where he's climate scientist, we're at 866-893-5722. That's 866 
893-5722, or you could also email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and your first name. Josh, we're talking about, and Haley was bringing up this point, that along the east coast of the United States, you could see uh, several feet worth of um, uh, additional um, coastline lost because of sea level rise. Um, you know, what are the odds that you get that more dramatic? Is that a similar sort of thing where it's just going to be gradual? But, you know, um, what are the odds it's going to reach that that number of feet? Well, the big concern really with sea level rise is the ice lost from Greenland. Um, If you put in enough ice, enough fresh water from melted ice in Greenland to shut down the overturning, it means you've added a lot of fresh water everywhere in the world. So we're going to be seeing uh, feet of sea level rise from that and from the ice lost in Antarctica. Um, These are the last two really big ice sheets on the planet, and both of them are melting because of the warming climate. So we're definitely going to see some more sea level rise. The overturning could make it uh, a little bit worse in some places, and that's certainly a possibility that people are going to be looking at very carefully. Haley, what's some of the general reaction of climate scientists to this new study? Um, I spoke to a number of scientists for this story, and there is some agreement that this is a possibility. The question is when and what it would take and what the consequences would be. But generally speaking, um, some researchers have suggested there's a five to 10% chance of it happening this century, which as you mentioned at the beginning of the segment is not a huge chance, but given the seriousness of the potential consequences, it's worth talking about and paying attention to. Um, You know, one researcher I spoke to put it this way, if a plane had a 90 to 95% chance of not crashing, would you get on it? Probably not. So um, so. the odds are low, but the consequences are high. Yeah. And just to, to restate again, you know, what, from what I was reading in your story, when you think about all the agriculture in Europe, and not just wine, as important as that is, but you know, so much of the agriculture that that feeds the continent, um, if if you drop twenty to thirty degrees, it, it wouldn't seem much would be sustainable, would it? Right, and I think that's an important takeaway here because we're in this place where we're starting to pay attention to climate change and we're starting to prepare for um, sort of amplification of the climate challenges that we're already experiencing. So worsening wildfires and heat waves and droughts and things like that. But in this scenario, everything becomes so sort of topsy-turvy that a lot of the preparations that are underway might become obsolete. So for example, places that are preparing to become hotter would suddenly become cooler and vice versa. So building codes, housing, agriculture, um, all of the, the plans that we're putting into place now may or may not, um, you know, work out based on this potential scenario. Haley, thank you so much for talking with us about your story in today's Los Angeles Times. We appreciate it very much. Sure. Thank you for having me. Haley Smith, environment reporter. Her story in today's paper, scientists warn a crucial ocean current could collapse, altering global weather. And Josh Willis, climate scientist with the Jet Propulsion Laboratory uh, run by NASA. Josh, thank you very much. Good to have you with us. Thank you, Larry. Happy to be here. 
It's Air Talk on LAS 89.3. We're eight days away from your final day to vote in the California primary. It's also Super Tuesday with big elections across the United States next Tuesday. So in advance uh, of that, we're going to be talking with registrars of three of our largest Southern California counties, Dean Logan of Los Angeles, Bob Page of Orange County, and Stephanie Shea of San Bernardino County. They'll share with us what they're seeing in the way of early voting and answer any of your questions as well if you're a resident of one of those three counties. We're at 866-893-5722. Back in a minute. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center, presenting the world premiere of Mix Mix, The Filipino Adventures of a German-Jewish Boy by Boney B. Alvarez. Inspired by true events from the life of Ralph Price, after escaping Nazi Germany, a newfound tropical refuge in the Philippines is upended when Japan invades the islands. On stage through June 16th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. So great to have you with us. Very important voting, of course, taking place right now and through next Tuesday for the California primary. Also important voting taking place in Hollywood for the Motion Picture Academy and the Oscars coming up uh, in just under two weeks. I just want to remind you, tickets are going fast for the 22nd Annual Film Week Academy Awards preview. We'll be at the historic Orpheum Theater in downtown Los Angeles on Broadway this coming Sunday afternoon at 1 o'clock. I'll be there with all of our Film Week critics, 11 of them on stage at the Orpheum. They're going to get into it on their picks in the major categories. Always a blast. They're funny. They're contentious. It's a great way for you to put the faces to the voices that you hear every week on Film Week with our tremendous core of critics. They'll be joining me on stage. We'll see clips from all 10 of the Best Picture nominees. It's going to be a great time. Members of the audience are even able to vote on their picks in the categories. If you haven't been to this event, I guarantee you're going to have a great time. Please join us. You can get your tickets at elias.com uh, slash events and arrive early you can step into our new film week recording booth it'll be in the lobby of the Orpheum you can give a shout out to your favorite critic or record your hot takes on this year's nominees and there's a chance we'll air it on our Friday and Saturday film week segments so we hope to have you join us Sunday afternoon at 1 at the Orpheum it's the film week 22nd annual Oscar preview elias.com slash events well, time for us to check in on what's happening with the California primary with three of our local registrars with early voting underway. Dean Logan, registrar of voters for Los Angeles County. Great to have you with us again. Good morning, Dean. 
Good morning, Larry. Great to be with you. So uh, how are things going in terms of uh, the early vote centers that are open and drop-off ballot boxes and all that? How are things looking? Yeah, operationally, um, everything's going smooth. We opened in-person voting uh, this weekend, and our vote-by-mail ballots, of course, have been out there for a while and and are are coming back in. I I think right now the the story we're... um, you know, we're eight days out, but the story is that the turnout is relatively low in this election. So I, I think what we're watching is to see if we're going to see something that, that surges turnout as we as we get to next Tuesday, um, or if this is going to uh, potentially be a, a relatively low turnout election for California. And and um, you attribute that largely to the, the presidential primaries not being competitive at this point? I think that that certainly is is the contrast from four years ago, and and you know because it is an early primary in March as opposed to the the June primary, the presidential contest seems to get the most attention. On the other hand, I, I and and I think this is important to remind voters is this is a this is a very heavy ballot. There's a lot of um, stuff on this ballot, including several contests and measures that will ultimately be decided in next Tuesday's election. So uh, there's a lot for voters to weigh in on, and and we certainly hope that they choose to do that by the time we get to next Tuesday. Well, and it's counterintuitive, but in fact, our votes carry much more weight in our local elections than they do in a presidential one, where in local races, there can be small margins about, you know, which candidate is going to go into the runoff um, when you've got three or more candidates vying for a, a particular seat in the primary. We've had ballot measures that have passed or failed by narrow margins, so it's these much closer closer to home races, uh, Dean, where, where we actually, our vote carries more weight. No, that's absolutely right, Larry. And, and, um, and now that we consolidate our local elections with the state elections in the even year, that's even more true. So, you know, just to put that in perspective here in LA County, we have three of our members of our board of supervisors who are on the ballot. Um, high likelihood that those contests could be decided in Tuesday's election. Uh, we have a, a very contested race for district attorney in the in the county. Um, there's at least one seat on the L.A. City Council with only two candidates, which means that will ultimately be decided in this election. And then, as you mentioned, there's a statewide proposition that has to do with um, the Mental Health Services Act. Um, that that is a significant policy measure that will be decided in this election as well. We're talking with Dean Logan, Registrar Voters for Los Angeles County, also with us Bob Page, who's uh, Dean's counterpart for Orange County. Bob, thank you for being with us again. Thank you for having me, Larry. So how are things going in Orange County with with the early voting? Um, They are going okay. We've got more than 150,000 voters who've returned their mail ballots so far, which is less than 10%, but we opened our vote centers on Saturday um, and saw kind of our typical um, you know, come, pe- voters coming in to to vote those days, not huge numbers the first week, but but we're there to serve anybody who wants to come in. It's great. And if you have questions for any of the registrars that are joining us, you can ask them right now at 866-893-5722. They won't tell you who or what to vote for, but they'll give you any um, advice or background on the casting of your ballots. So if you have questions about that, just about the procedure, about vote centers, about drop-off, boxes, about the counting of ballots, how all of that infrastructure around the election is conducted, you can give us a 
can call right now at 866-893-5722, or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. Uh, on NBR's Morning Edition today, there there was a segment about um, the kind of training that's going on for poll workers around the country to keep them safe, because sadly, we're, we're seeing an environment in which there have been threats against um, poll workers. And um, I don't want to give this, you know, too much attention, but against, uh, you know, public officials who work in elections. Bob, what's Orange County doing in that regard? Well, we have a, a very robust training program for the people that we hire to work in our vote centers. We put them through two and a half days of training, which includes a, a whole day of in-person training. Um, the first thing, obviously, to make sure that they understand the role that they play in helping their neighbors to vote. Um, but then as part of that, that training over that time, we do provide them with tips on how to um, serve customers, to be attentive to their needs, listen to them, You know, some de-escalation techniques. Um, we also partner really closely with law enforcement at all levels, local, state, and federal, uh, to advise us on things that we can do. So we actually, for the people that manage the vote centers or are out in the field supporting them, um, we actually had um, DHS send some staff out and provide some additional de-escalation training to those folks as well. All right. Have, have there been any incidents or have things been calm in these early days? Things have been calm. Um, you know, we've had a couple instances with with unhoused people who will like to use the public facilities that that we open up in, and and you know, we make sure if they want to vote that they can vote, use the facilities, and just make sure that they're not in the voting process. And since you brought that up, just out of curiosity, how if if someone doesn't have an address, they're living in a, a vehicle or living on the street, how are they accommodated with voting? Well, everybody has a right to vote that's that's an adult, um, not in prison for a felony, um, and um, not found by a court to be mentally incompetent, uh, that they're a citizen. So if an unhoused person is eligible and they come into one of our vote centers, we will assist them to help them register to vote. Uh, in order to give them the right ballot, we'll need to know um, where they reside, you know, what what neighborhood they're, they typically stay in, what cross streets, those kind of things, okay. in order to precinct them and then provide them with the ballot that um, is for that precinct. So you could take the nearest intersection or or an address if there's an address if if they're living right. in an encampment and use use that as as though it's a domicile. Correct. Bob Page, Registrar Voters for Orange County. We're at 866-893-5722, where you can email your question for the registrars at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. Stephanie Shea is Registrar Voters for San Bernardino County. Stephanie, good to have you with us this morning. How are things going there? Hi, Larry. Thanks for having me. Uh, in San Bernardino County, things are going really well. Uh, we're, we, we're getting ready for Election Day. Um, ROV here in our San Bernardino office is an early vote site, and we have four more opening up uh, tomorrow on February 27th, but everything looks good so far. All right. Uh, are you seeing the, the low turnout that Orange and L.A. counties are experiencing? Yes, we're seeing that as well. Um, our mail ballot returns as of last Friday is just around, uh, just under 62,000. Uh, we are seeing around the same activity as the other counties. 
Uh, Dean Logan was talking about all the big races in Los Angeles County. We've got a highly contested district attorney's race in L.A. County, uh, L.A. Uh, school board, Los Angeles City Council seats, um, Orange County. There are two supervisorial districts out of the five that are on the ballot and uh, a recall effort involving two members of the Orange Unified uh, School Board, uh, major uh, charter measures in Huntington Beach. In San Bernardino County, do you have local measures that are particular draws? We do have local measures. Uh, we also have uh, three supervisorial contests um, up for election uh, for uh, the various districts for this upcoming election. So, yes, there there is um, some interest there. Very good. And uh, what about the training that you do with your poll workers? Um, what's a particularly maybe interesting part the public may not be aware of that that is an important aspect of training you provide? Well, similar to what Bob spoke about, we also hold um, poll worker training because their safety and security is, is very important to us as well. Um, there are de-escalation techniques and training that we hold as well as um, the general poll worker training. And like the other counties, we have the full support and partnership of law enforcement. We work with them. Uh, we share with them our polling place locations, our early vote sites, and our drop box locations. And uh, the Department of Homeland Security has also provided training to us. Your county is massive in size, um, you know, bigger than most states probably. It's so, San Bernardino is so big. So how do you deal with such a far-flung county, even getting the ballots in to be counted? Well, uh, San Bernardino County is, is unique in that respect. Uh, we are geographically very, very large. Uh, we, when we talk about the partnership from law enforcement, we actually uh, partner with our Sheriff Aviation, and they help fly the ballots on election night back to us at ROV um, from various uh, areas such as Trona and Needles. All right. Yeah, that's important to think. So Needles out on the Colorado River <laughs> is in San Bernardino County to give you a sense of, of how far flung it is. Denise in Crenshaw Manor asks, um, how uh, can people count write-in candidates when they're not on the approved list? Uh, Dean Logan, let me ask you about that because not all you know, write-in candidates are the same. You, you can't just write uh, your sister-in-law in on the ballot and have her name be, be counted necessarily. So how does that work for write-ins? Yeah, no, great question. And certainly uh, any voter has the, has the right to write in a candidate on that write-in spot for, for any contest. But uh, we, we only um, tally and report the votes cast for those um, write-in candidates who are on the declared write-in list, wh where that would where that would be different, and it would be a very unusual circumstances if there were enough write-in votes cast in a contest to um, impact the outcome of the contest, then we would go through and tally um, all of the individual write-in candidates to to determine the outcome of the contest. But as a general rule under California election law, um, only write-in votes cast for those who are on the official write-in list. Um, will be tabulated. And for that write-in list, they're vetted, right, to make sure that they are legally qualified to run for a given position? That's correct. They go through the, the candidate uh, qualification process 
just like those candidates who um, completed the, the original nomination process. We're very tight on time, but Jim in Palm Springs with an excellent question. Why don't registrars forward ballots? I'll be away from my main home in Orange County, but the registrar won't forward my ballot to me. Bob Page? Well, we will issue ballot if, if a voter notifies us that they have a temporary address that they want us to mail the ballot to, we will. Okay. Um, okay. The ballots, if, if we don't have a forward by address, we're going to mail it to the address we have on file, and there is not forwarding service for a ballot. Those will come back. If, the, if they're not deliverable, they do come back to our office. So you need to let your office know in advance before the ballots are mailed out that you'll be at a different location, it sounds like. Uh, gentlemen uh, and Stephanie Shea, thank you so much. Stephanie Shea, San Bernardino County, Registrar of Voters, Bob Page, Orange County's Registrar, and Dean Logan of Los Angeles County. It's Air Talk on LA, it's 89.3. We'll be back in 90 seconds. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center, presenting the world premiere of Mix Mix, The Filipino Adventures of a German-Jewish Boy by Boney B. Alvarez. Inspired by true events from the life of Ralph Price, after escaping Nazi Germany, a newfound tropical refuge in the Philippines is upended when Japan invades the islands. On stage through June 16th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. It's Air Talk on LA at 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. On Mondays, we do one of my favorite segments of all. That's our look at Southern California history. And given that we're just a couple weeks in advance of the Academy Awards, we thought we'd focus on the history of the Academy itself and the Oscars. Last year, I talked with Bruce Davis, who spent three decades on the staff of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, including as its executive director for more than 20 years. He retired about a decade ago, started digging through the Academy's archives, the minutes of board meetings, really trying to get a handle on the evolution of the organization from its earliest years. The result was his book, The Academy and the Award, The Coming of Age of Oscar and the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences will take you back to that interview from last year. So share with us um, why this history of the Academy was so little known. Why were the boxes, you know, tucked away where historians, for the most part, didn't have access to them? Yeah, it was it was kind of surprising. Um, I was a little embarrassed as late as the time when I retired about how little I knew about the formation. And I knew that over the years, talking to members, members themselves didn't pretend to have much of any idea of, of how things started. There were, there were uh, some of them had a vague uh, idea that Louis B. Mayer had brought it about as a defense against the um, the burgeoning uh, labor uh, issue, labor movement coming across the country. 
Um, but beyond that, uh, none of us um, had any idea of, of the complexity of the formation uh, or the nature of the uh, organization in its earliest years and how, how this business of giving out splendid prizes came yeah. about and uh, whatnot. So um, as soon as I um, took my mantle off and uh, got into retired gear, um, I— I, I realized that uh, there were there were a lot of things about this organization that that uh, I myself had never really explored, and some myths that you uh, are able to debunk here. Let's start with with the formation of it. So, who did you find really was most responsible for the creation of the academy? Well, there's no question that Louis B. Mayer was right in the thick of it, and he, whatever his motives may really have been, um, he he uh, he. He, he was he was a founding figure, no question. But as I as I started looking at the early committee reports and uh, uh, the, the the incentives to get all these filmmakers together, um, I realized that a a guy named uh, Frank Woods uh, might be more accurately called the father of the Academy. Certainly, the father of the Academy Awards, because that was an idea that uh, he. He got excited about, uh, not instantly, but uh, about a year in, um, and he said, this this would be good for our art form. This would be um, a way of telling the public what we who make the movies feel is the best work we've done in the course of a year. And um, you'd think, well, that's a natural. That They grabbed that and ran with it, but they did not. They, everybody thought it was a dumb idea. Who'd <laughs> be interested in awards for movies? Yeah, right. And, and well, the, the, real, the real cynicism was that everybody, you know, it was, it was a, a, um, a small nest of these corporations that each had their own teams, and everybody thought that uh, they were all going to vote for the MGM guys would vote for MGM yeah. films, and the Fox guys would vote for. So it ended up being a meaningless exercise. Absolutely meaningless. Yes, and um, and you could understand um, the idea that they might want to vote for their own team, and there's even a self-interest of keeping uh, keeping things profitable at the box office. So. Um, he he had to kind of persuade people very gradually um, that it was worth trying anyway. That the public would be interested in the opinions of the of the I, I was going to say the nation's filmmakers, and it was pretty much an American organization uh, for the first few years. Um, and there were still significant studios in New York at the in the early years, right? It wasn't all here. Well, the 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 uh, the the main executives tended to be in New York and um the but they they weren't making many movies in New York except in the very very uh early period um uh, Bruce let's let's talk about the name Oscar where that came from what did you find in your research well it I, it's a longer story than you probably want here but it's it's something that people have speculated about for years yeah. and it was it was one of my incentives for writing the book i thought every year at oscar time you see all these different stories in the magazines and on tv about where the name came from, and uh, there are three major theories, three major claimants to the uh, to the honor of having um, having given him the nickname, 
And nobody really knows. All of those stories end with saying, but but the Academy says they're not really sure. So I thought, we can do better than that. And I think I came up with a, a candidate that no one had identified and that I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm willing to bet really was the person who did it. I can certainly disprove the, um, the claims of the three major claimants, one of whom is Betty Davis, uh, who for years claimed that uh, when she won her first Oscar, uh, she was at the podium and she turned it around and studied his backside and decided that it looked very much like the backside of her husband at the time, <laughs> whose middle name was Oscar, in fact. But she never really—nobody called him Oscar. They called him Ham, which wouldn't have been a good name for an, <laughs> for an acting award. Uh, but she finally uh, kind of grumpily conceded late in, late in her life in a book that— uh, that, okay. So she, what? So what is the story, Bruce? What, what's the origin? Well, the origin is that um, in the offices, uh, one of the one of the secretaries uh, in the in the late twenties, when they first started giving these prizes out, it was her job every year to round up the year's uh, cast of Oscars and make sure they all arrived at the building where the ceremonies was. And uh, that they had enough and they were in perfect shape and that kind of thing. And in the process of handling them, her own story, which her brother wrote down and I discovered up near Big Bear in a funny little museum up there. Uh, uh, she got tired of calling them whatchamacallits or whosits or those thingies. And uh, one day she just decided to call it Oscar. And... Nobody knew why she called it yeah. Oscar, but they thought the other her colleagues in the office thought that was amusing, and evidently it got out to maybe governors of the academy. But uh, little by little, uh, it became that formalized. Be, it became a nickname. Yeah, but not by the, the academy was was a little shocked by it. That seemed a little frivolous and uh, uh, did not use it um, itself. Uh, until 1939, this this was a gap of 10 years or so between the appellation and the and the acceptance of it by the academy. But um, eventually, they thought that's a good thing. People like calling it Oscar. We're talking with Bruce Davis, who's the former executive director of the Motion Picture Academy. Uh, he's been retired for more than a decade, and during that time, a very busy man uh, studying the history of the Academy. And his book is The Academy and the Award, The Coming of Age of Oscar and the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. Um, we need to break in, in a minute, but there are a number of, of different things that you debunk just real quickly. The time that Betty Davis... Um, was was running the show uh, was not as tumultuous as claimed, right? And I'm not sure that many people in the public are even aware that that claim existed. But yeah, there was kind of a among film scholars, there was a, a legend that that her term as president of the academy had been uh, a kind of a hostile uh, incursion, and um, uh, that she quit yeah. in a huff. Uh, and it's true that she was only president for 50 days, but she had a pretty good excuse. Uh, during those 50 days, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, and America changed, and uh, 
She thought maybe there are more important things for me to be doing in wartime here. As many actors, of course, did, oh, helping yes. the U.S. Uh, in Allied war effort. Bruce Davis, author of the Academy and the Award, back in one minute. It's Air Talk on LA Estate 89.3. Larry Mantle, it's Monday, and that means time for Southern California history. We're right in the midst of talking with Bruce Davis, former director of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. After he retired from his executive director position, he started researching the origins of the Academy and what went on in those early days and its evolution. He's author of the Academy and the Award, The Coming of Age of Oscar, and the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. I talked with him last year about this book, and we're reprising it because we're just a couple weeks in advance of the Oscars. Bruce, from the beginning, beyond the Oscars, was there a sense that there should be um, an educational, academic aspect of the Academy, that films were an art form that needed to be nurtured? Yes, absolutely. And and I think that was really, whatever Louis B. Mayer's uh, hopes and dreams were, I I think when, when they began recruiting artists, film artists for the organization, it turned out that what they cared about was kind of uh, legitimizing the art form that they worked in. Most people, even though the the movies were uh, extremely popular in the silent period of the teens and the early 20s, um, people just thought of it as a kind of a, a fun thing to do. And the people who were making those movies thought, "No, damn it, we're this is an art form, and we are we are creating major art, and I think we can educate the public about how that works and which of our works are uh, are worthy of serious attention, and which are just kind of silly fun things." Um, so yeah, that was a that was a driving force, and. Um, and and it it was a driving force behind the uh, the establishment of the Academy Awards. When this started to become uh, really big business around the Oscars and the studios looking for nominations and awards to boost box office and the like, and you got the big campaigns for the Oscars, how did that change the organization if it did? I'm not sure it changed the organization. Um, it it certainly changed the 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 public attention to the awards because you did begin to get um, these very infor- unfortunate uh, campaigns which got more and more uh, extensive particularly if you lived here in in uh, in Los Angeles um, the the Academy's preference up till today still would be that the nobody ever took out an ad for the Academy Awards that you made the you made the uh, the films of a given year uh, as 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 available as possible to the people who were going to be doing the voting, and you just let them decide. And to, and you know you don't go to a big room and everybody raises their hand for this one or something. It's a very private um, act voting for the Academy Awards. And they would prefer that it stayed that way. But, of course, there's, it's very hard to, 
legislate. It's hard to make up rules that will prevent people from buying advertising, from throwing elaborate dinners where you come to see the movie, that kind of thing. It Because um, you can always find ways around the rules, creative ways to circumvent them. That's exactly the problem. And I, I, it, it, by coincidence, uh, there was a meeting, I think, last night of the Board of Governors uh, thinking about is there a way now because there's there's been some controversy about this year's yeah one nominations. of the best actress nominees yeah. and uh, you know could could that have been handled differently should there have been some intervention by the uh, academy if they became aware that that was going on um, it's tricky and it it crops up every ten or twenty years somebody steps over a line and then the organization pulls back and defines that line. Um, and maybe it's time to do that again. We're talking with Bruce Davis, the former executive director of the Motion Picture Academy. His new book, The Academy and the Award, The Coming of Age of Oscar and the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and, and Sciences. You left in 2011, and less than a year later, the L.A. Times and our John Horn, who was part of a team of reporters at the time, did their big series, Unmasking Oscar, and and pointing that Academy voters were overwhelmingly white and male. And the, the numbers were, were pretty shocking, a median age of 62. And uh, as you look at, at, you know, the reporting of that, first, what was your reaction when, when you saw the Times do that? Well, well, it wasn't a big surprise to me. I'd been meeting with the members of the Academy for a long time, and, and I, I, wasn't, I wasn't surprised because I knew that to— to attain the eminence within a given field, whether you're a sound person or a cinematographer or whatever, you're not going to achieve that in your 20s. I mean, it's not something that just comes with the first crack out of the box. And you have to do it several times to qualify for Academy membership. Now, an exception would be maybe actors who do uh, have great roles in their 20s and uh, they come in as as fairly young members. But... Um, in in most of the branches of the academy, it it takes some time and a number of you have to have a you have to have a body of work. So you're going to be in your 30s or 40s or something at at a minimum. Uh, so I wasn't surprised that the organization uh, skewed middle aged or or higher. Yeah. Uh, but it seemed to be a great shock to many people. Gosh, these aren't kids uh, making these decisions about the Oscars. Um, so uh, I, I thought, frankly, that the Academy could have, could have handled it better uh, in terms of explaining what the process is of becoming um, eligible for the organization. But um, in any case, they set to it, and they began um, approaching membership with more of an eye to uh, diversity and to— And uh, youth. And, and age, yeah. yeah. And, and so what do you think about that, taking people who are— not as late in their careers and inviting them to join the academy uh, in an effort to diversify age, race, ethnicity, and gender. Do you think this is a positive step? Yes and no. Um, you don't want it to become... Uh, the the fear at the time of that uh, time series was that uh, it, was, it was more... Uh, it was geriatric now, and it was going to get more geriatric. And if you only... If you only picked 
the people for membership who, in effect, had been standing in line waiting for 30 years. And, of course, that was going to happen. So just the very attention, the, the focusing of attention on the uh, membership decisions every year, I think, helped um, allay fears that the organization was spiraling into old age. But um, uh, if you if you start if you start committing uh, to if if you're starting to look at di- diversity alone rather than artistry, uh, then then you're going to get into other kinds of problems. Well, I think the thought is that you know there were all these people who'd had impressive careers who hadn't been invited, who might have been younger, and and that the the films that people are seeing have. More diverse casts today are aimed at a younger audience, and that now having a somewhat younger academy and a somewhat more diverse academy better reflects the films that are being made and the audiences that are paying money to you know to go to these films. Sure, yeah. As my uh, 2023 interview with Bruce Davis, author of The Academy and the Award, The Coming of Age of Oscar and the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. Uh, for 30 years, he was on the staff of the Academy, including as executive director. I want to remind you to join me this coming Sunday for our 22nd annual Film Week Academy Awards preview at the Orpheum Theater, downtown Los Angeles on Broadway, a beautiful venue. If you haven't been to the Orpheum in recent years, come out and join us. All 11 of our Film Week critics on stage, we take on the major categories. We have a blast and we'd love to have you in the audience. Tickets at LAist.com slash events. I hope to see you this coming Sunday at 1 o'clock at the Orpheum. Much more to come in the second hour. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center, presenting the world premiere of Ghost Waltz by Oliver Mayer, a bold original recovery of Juventino Rosas, one of Mexico's most significant composers. Follow Rosas from his father's early death to his friendship with ragtime genius Scott Joplin, now on stage through June 2nd. Tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. It's Air Talk on LA at 89.3. Great Monday to you. Hope you had a nice weekend. So good to be with you wherever you're listening. Worldwide at LAS.com or on the LAS app or one of our terrestrial transmitters. Uh, 89.3 and other frequencies from Santa Barbara to Indio. So good to have you with us. We turn our attention now to the future water supply of California. As you might know, a significant amount of water that flows to the state comes from the snowmelt of the Sierra Nevada. That's why what the snowpack is at given periods of the winter is so vitally important to the water that we're going to have later in the year. About 30% of our overall 
all water that we use comes from the runoff of the snowpack of the Sierra. Joining us to talk about where we stand at this point in our season is Michael Anderson, state climatologist with the Department of Water Resources. Michael, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. Good morning. Good morning. Well, at the beginning of the year, things were looking not so good. We were we had gotten a fair amount of rain, but not a lot of snow. And where do we stand now in the Sierra? Right. Well, February has been a uh, fantastic uh, month for catch-up, as you will. Uh, we went from you know a quarter of what we would expect at the beginning of the year to up to 82% of average for this date statewide in terms of where we want to be by April 1. So we've got a little over a month to go. We're at about 70% of that mark. So as long as March comes in strong, we have a chance of getting to average. And what's your sense looking at the longer range forecasts of, of uh, our chances of, of getting to average this year? Well, March is certainly going to come roaring in. Uh, we have a storm later in the week. Uh, rain statewide, some higher amounts up in the northern part of the state. Uh, so, and freezing levels fairly low. So, look to gain a fair bit of snow uh, with this current set of storms. Longer term, in March is when we start to see uh, the beginning of spring. We start to see that storm track start moving back north. And so, the storms become less frequent. So, I uh, want to get what we can while we can. And Mike, I wonder if you could elaborate on concerns about our California snowpack generally, because one of the things that we see with the warming climate is even if we get uh, a large amount of rain, that where the the snow line is and and uh, the odds that 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 precipitation is going to be stored as snow till till later melt, uh, that diminishes as the temperatures are warmer. And you know, talk kind of about the longer term consequences of that, if you would. You bet. So a um, lot in there. So let's first talk about you know. Uh, the higher snow lines in each of the storms. You know, when we see the snow lines six, seven thousand feet, it doesn't leave a whole lot of watershed, particularly in the Sacramento basin, uh, for snow to accumulate. Ninety-five percent of the Sacramento basin is at an elevation less than seven thousand five hundred feet. Uh, the San Joaquin fares a little better because half of that watershed is above that seventy-five hundred foot marker. So as we see uh, the storms come in warmer. Uh, that snow line gets higher. There's less watershed for the snow to accumulate, but as it warms, the higher elevations in this transition time uh, will tend to see the snow distributed a little differently than it has been historically. There's more opportunity to pile the snow deeper at some of the higher elevations. So having the ability to track that change as we work our way through the decades is gonna be key. Yeah, and, and um, it just tells us how important not just precipitation is, but the temperature at which it arrives at and and how the, the complexity of all this. That is correct. It is a really complex process. Every watershed is uh, different because it has a different characteristic of how much area is above a certain elevation and how big the watershed is. So really understanding that, understanding the character of the storms, including the temperature, not just the amount of uh, precip coming with it, 
is absolutely key. And, and Michael, of course, one of the things that is of great concern is can we capture more of the rainfall that we lose to the ocean and be able to bank that in aquifers, be able to store that in reservoirs so that maybe in the future we're not as reliant on a snowpack that might be not what it has been historically? Exactly. And this year we're building off of uh, a lot of work that initiated last year, getting through that massive snowmelt, uh, doing everything we could to make sure there were opportunities for aquifer recharge when there's um, sufficient water in the system to allow that. And so this year we're building on that, being more coordinated and working with our local partners uh, and, uh, to have that opportunity. And uh, reservoir levels looking strong at this point? Yes, we've been fortunate, uh, you know, with the water that we had last year and uh, pretty good carryover for this year. Uh, right now, we're running about 120% of average. Now, you understand average includes all the really dry drought years when there's very little water in the reservoirs. So it's not that they're um, in danger, uh, not able to do their job this time of year. It just means on average, we've got more water stored there to help us into uh, the dry season. Michael Anderson, thank you so much. Good to have you with us today on Air Talk. Thank you. Have a good day. You too. State climatologist with California's Department of Water Resources. The population of Western monarch butterflies had reached millions in the 1980s, but over the past few years, the population has decreased significantly. This past winter, scientists and volunteers visited more than 250 overwintering sites throughout California, and they counted around 233,000 butterflies, a 30% drop from the previous winter. This comes from a report released by the Xerxes Society for Invertebrate Conservation. Joining us is endangered species conservation biologist with the Xerxes Society, Isis Howard. Isis, thank you for joining us. Oh, I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you for having me. So uh, your organization's been counting butterflies for more than 25 years. What is the longer-term look at the population of, of this beautiful creature? Yeah, so monarch butterflies in general have experienced significant declines over the past several decades. But when we look at the western monarchs, which is a population of monarch butterflies that migrates, breeds, and overwinters west of the Rocky Mountains, so those are the butterflies we're seeing along our Pacific coastline, that population, the Western monarchs, have declined by more than 95% since the 1980s. So it's a pretty, pretty severe decline. And do we have a good sense of the factors that are at play with the decline? Yeah, we do. So as usual, um, it's it's a kind of nuanced combination of factors that are leading to the Western monarch decline. Um, in general, these include habitat loss, pesticide use, climate change is also probably making it harder um, for monarchs with more severe and frequent winter storms and extreme temperatures and droughts and other factors like disease and predation may also play a role. But the number one factor of decline is definitely habitat loss of both their milkweed breeding ranges and their overwintering habitat. 
Mm. And I know there are efforts uh, to get people to do their own monarch uh, butterfly gardens and things like that to try and create even micro habitats that that yeah. uh, the Western monarchs could use. To what extent is that working? Yeah, so everyone has a role to play in Western monarch conservation from small gardens, you know, just a handful of plants to large restoration zones on, you know, public land, ag land, parks land. Um, there's so much people can do, not even just planting, just submitting photos of monarchs and their host plant milkweeds really helps conservationists and scientists better understand when and where monarchs and milkweeds are appearing on the landscape. Um, so a few different ways that people can help out include planting native milkweeds. Um, and we want to avoid planting those native milkweeds at overwintering sites, but um, you can check out websites like Calflora and Calscape to better understand which native milkweed plants grow in your region. You can just enter your address and it'll those two websites will show you a list of, of native milkweed plants you can go purchase. And then um, additionally planting native nectar plants for the adult butterflies that migrate hundreds to thousands of miles, those will really help. And native nectar plants you can plant along the coast near overwintering sites too. So those will just help the butterflies no matter where they are. Um, and then also, like I said, uh, participating in community science efforts. So whether that's counting butterflies at the overwintering sites each winter or snapping a photo when you see a butterfly in your backyard, on your community walk, near work, all of that's really helpful. And you can submit those photos to iNaturalist, which is an app or a website, or to the Western Monarch Milkweed Mapper website. What's the route that these butterflies take throughout their life? Yeah, so it kind of depends on the population. The Western Monarch butterflies are migrating um, from their their breeding zones, um, which are kind of all over the western U.S., uh, west of the Rocky Mountains. So, and then they're um, they're migrating down to overwintering sites along the Pacific Coast. And we've recovered monarchs at our overwintering sites in California from the states of Washington, Oregon. Uh, Northern California, Idaho, Nevada, Arizona, New Mexico, Utah. Um, but then they'll spend the winter there and then they'll migrate back out to their breeding zones in spring, which is kind of where we're at now. So a lot of monarchs are leaving their overwintering sites along the coast and starting to travel inland and more north. Um, across the United States to get back to where those milkweeds are popping up. So these these Western monarchs travel just an incredible number of miles. And are they driven to come to these coastal overwintering sites just by temperature change? Is that what, what triggers their movement? We think that could be one of the factors that triggers their migration. But just like a bunch of migratory animals, um, we think that they're cued by a lot of different factors. So it could include light, magnetic poles, temperatures, the availability of resources. So it kind of like, you know, monarchs rely on milkweeds to reproduce. And if you think about it from like a really logical standpoint, it doesn't really make sense for monarchs to be like inland 
uh, braving those cold winter temperatures if there's no milkweeds available because these milkweed plants will die back during winter. So it kind of makes sense that they travel to the coast and hunker down in these like coastal buffered temperate um, tree groves that'll protect them from storms. And then that they migrate back out in spring, summer when the milkweed is available. We're talking with Isis Howard of the Xerces Society for Invertebrate Conservation. She's endangered species conservation biologist, and we're talking about the population of the western monarch butterfly. Is it an endangered species? Yeah, this is a great question, and I often see a lot of confusion about this. So right now, monarchs are not an endangered species on the endangered species list. They are listed as vulnerable on the IUCN red list, um, so they are a species of special concern, but they don't have any like policy or legal protections just yet. But what's really exciting that I'm looking forward to is this fall, we do expect the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to announce their listing decision, um, which would potentially put monarchs on the endangered species list. So um, we don't know what their decision will be, whether monarchs will be listed as threatened, endangered, vulnerable. Um, but again, we should expect that decision this fall. They're so beautiful. They have intrinsic aesthetic value. But what is their value within um, hierarchy of species and, and throughout um, the food chain and, and pollination chain? Yeah. Yeah. Like, why are monarchs important? Yeah. Why should people care? Yeah. Um, yeah. So this has multiple answers, like m many of these questions. But number one, we kind of consider monarchs a flagship species in conservation biology. And what I mean by this, by flagship species, is that monarchs serve as a sort of poster child for pollinator conservation. They elicit a lot of, you know, um, compassion and energy uh, and really get people to act and take action to protect other at-risk pollinators, such as butterflies, bees, and other beneficial insects. Um, and beyond. So when we think of like climate change, we often think of polar bears and penguins. When we think of pollinator conservation, we often think of butterflies and bees. And so monarchs have this really powerful um, ability to sort of get people to take action. Um, and they also represent the plight of the pollinator because the declines in monarchs oftentimes reflect the declines in other insects as well. And, and additionally, they play like a really big role in the in the web of life. So, you know, monarchs are an invertebrate. They're one of our insects and they kind of form this foundation for a lot of other life, including our native songbirds, some of the mammals, um, so, yeah, a lot of our native songbirds rely on insects as well. With with some of our bird populations rebounding the way they have, is that a mm -hmm. factor, do you think, in uh, the more difficult time the Western monarch has had? You know, I don't know if I can specifically pinpoint that, but, you know, like I said before, predation and disease can also play a role in influencing population declines. Um, but... You know, I think, again, the number one reason for uh, monarch declines in the West is definitely habitat loss. And pulling so, out milkweed. Why Was milkweed yeah. removed just for development or, or because it was considered to be um, um, uh, an undesirable plant? Yeah, 
Yeah. So milkweed does spread a lot, right? So if there's any gardeners listening in, milkweed does spread. Some of the plants have these like rhizomes um, and they spread pretty freely. So a lot of people had considered it a weed in the past. And so it was eradicated across the U.S. But then we realized, oh, my gosh, there's this really incredible relationship between monarchs and milkweed. So if we take away all our milkweed, we're going to lose monarchs, too. So right now we're really encouraging people to plant native milkweed um, in their communities to help protect monarchs. Isis, thank you very much for being with us. We really appreciate you talking about the challenges faced by the Western monarch butterfly. Oh, I'm so happy. Thank you for letting me speak. Thank you. From the Xerxes Society for Invertebrate Conservation, it's Air Talk on LAS 89.3. So coming up right after a very brief break, I want to talk with you if you're still wrestling over your vote. And I'd just love to check in with you, have you talk about what it is you're struggling with. I'm one of those people who votes, you know, at the very, very last, maybe two days before uh, the actual voting day or on voting day itself, because I often wrestle with my decision for candidates and, and for ballot measures. If you're in that place right now, I'd like to hear from you. I would just caution, please don't call in to bash any of the candidates or to make allegations. That's, that's not what we're doing here. It's sort of, it's analytical. I'm asking you to kind of share what you're weighing of, of something that may be a close call for you on your ballot. 866-893-5722. No candidate bashing, please. 866. And no electioneering. Pretend you're close to a polling place. But I want your analysis. 866-893-5722. We'll be back in a minute. So good to have you with us on Air Talk. No guest for this next segment. It's you if you're a listener and and you're still weighing your decision on your California primary ballot. Please give us a call and share with us what you're undecided on, what you're working your way through. Um, because I know for me, that's something I, I've, I often wrestle with these things up until the very last minute. So many people ask me, oh, you know, have, have you made up your mind? Just assume because I'm, I'm doing interviews and we have debates and I'm hearing all the pros and cons that it sort of you know leads to an easy decision. No, often it's exactly the opposite because I'm still waiting, weighing the trade-offs involved. Does the solution to a particular societal problem do more harm than good? Is it really that it can actually be carried out in the way that those making the proposed uh, program or shift or spending are, are saying that it would be carried out. And for candidates, you know, how, how much do I factor in the candidate as a person versus the policy positions? And would those policy positions even be relevant to what the actual elected office is? All of these things that for many of us we wrestle with I would love to hear from you with your uh, thoughts about particular ballot measures that you're dealing with or with candidates' races that you're undecided. And again, please do this in the spirit of, 
of um, of sharing without bashing particular people, running for office or touting particular people, but just how you're in the throes of making the decision. 866-893-5722. 866-893-5722. This is certainly something I would not open up with other than the AirTalk audience because I, I know that so many listeners are analytical, can come at this in a very open-minded way and just share some of the ways that that you're um, going back and forth over these issues, which I certainly relate to. 866-893-5722. Or you can uh, email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. Uh, share with us where you are in that entire process. Let's talk with resident of the West Adams District of Los Angeles, Dorit. Good to have you with us on Air Talk. Good morning. My whole ballot is complete, and I'm somewhat comfortable with everything I'm voting for except Prop 1. It has got me tearing my hair out. Um, <laughs> I've I, I worked in homeless services for 30 years, and I'm working in housing now, so I know there's a need. I know there's certain people who are not being helped as they should be, but is this the right way to do it? Do we really need to take money from the other program, which is doing good work, and put it to, to this program? Do we need to tax us more? Can we just find the money elsewhere for the, for the other part of it? Instead of a bond, can we maybe just tax rich people again? So I'm... I'm just very baffled about how I should vote. You're not alone, Dorit. I was uh, speaking uh, at an event with some of my LA's colleagues yesterday, and one of the people in the audience asked about Proposition 1. So I took a few minutes, and I laid out, well, here's what proponents say and, and why Governor Newsom says it's important, but here's what critics say about it. They're concerned about you know taking this pool of money that goes directly to the counties under the so-called millionaire's tax, now giving the state control of that, and whether the state. So I'm laying out all these stuff, and I see the, the faces of the people that are at this group just looking like, oh my gosh, this is so complex. And 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 it requires a level of trust in one direction. And what you know, what about the other? And they're people that I respect, groups I respect on both sides of this. So Dorit, you are not alone. And I, I think it this speaks to the overall challenge that many of us have when we're looking at highly complex and very ambitious ballot measures. These are not easy decisions to read. And I honestly wonder, why are we being taxed and told to do this? <laughs> I love <laughs> You're resenting having this. Yeah, Dorit, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Starting our conversation, what what are the issues on the ballot that you're really struggling? You're weighing the pros and cons. You're trying to figure out, and you're taking this seriously. It's obviously, if you're listening to Air Talk, you take elections seriously. Your vote matters to you. Um, you may spend a great deal of time studying it using our voter game plan at las.com slash vote or listening, you know, for example, if you're voting in L.A. County and you want to make a good decision uh, for you on, on the DA's race. You know, maybe you've gone back and listened at las.com slash vote to all of the interviews that I did with all of the candidates running for uh, L.A. County DA and, and you know, trying to 
to discern which is the person that you want to support in in the election. You know, all of that you take seriously, but these are not easy decisions. You know, so often it's few and far between that it's, you know, clear, you know, clear, oh, yes, this is all good or this is all bad. Often you're weighing what the trade-offs are in various measures. Joseph, in the city of Orange, good to have you with us. So, Joseph, what are you wrestling with on your ballot? I'm I'm gonna focus on the the presidential election specifically, um, not to not to bash, but just to acknowledge that I previously voted for current President Biden, and I, I was not happy about that choice at the time, given his history with uh, lots of issues, including Anita Hill in the past and his facilitation of the attacks on her character. But for focusing on right now. What is what is primarily, although not exclusively, but primarily bothering me is I don't regard the position that he's taken on the current attacks by Israel on what I regard to be the Palestinian people as a sufficiently bold one. He said, you know, that he's working behind the scenes, the behind the scenes and he's talked about a two-state solution and you know in theory that sounds fine but in terms of taking a a stance that will actually move the needle in in you know the court of public opinion i i think it's his position has been rather milquetoast. It's just, it's yeah, so, uh, uh, and, uh, yeah, so. not to interrupt, Joseph, but just sort of to, to push this forward a little bit. So so what are you thinking? So you're you're not real enamored with President Biden and and you reluctantly voted for him four years ago. So what are you considering as as an alternative at this point? Fair question. Easy answer. The most obvious option is to abstain entirely on on the presidential ballot and just vote for the other candidates and issues. Um, I, I don't love that option. The other option is either whichever third party candidates, I, I hate the term third party, yeah. but whichever other, but candidates, other not, yeah, non-Republican or Democrat. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Or, or, or writing in, um, yeah. you know, as a, as a gesture that, that, but that's, that's all that's yeah. Right. Yeah. And and Joseph, you know, was as we know in this election, the unfavorable ratings of of the two party um, likely nominees very, very high in this race. And so people are, you know, considering what they want to do. Just one thing, if you do a write in, I mean, you can, of course, write in anybody you want. No one's going to stop you. But if you wanted it to actually be tabulated, it does need to be someone who's actually approved as eligible. And, and so uh, the state of California, I believe, has a, a list of that through the Secretary of State's office. But Joseph, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. And uh, obviously, you're not alone when it comes to people who are um, dissatisfied with candidates for a given race trying to decide, well, what do I do? Do I just not vote in that race? Do I write someone in? Do I vote for what I see as as, uh, the person who offends me less? Is that my choice? Let's talk with Winona in Huntington Beach. Winona, thanks so much. What are you wrestling with on your ballot? Yeah, so I've been doing the practice ballot, and I have everything pretty much filled in, but it's the second item, which is on uh, voting for members for the county central committee. And um, I there's eight um, choices, and I can pick up to six, 
but there's no bios on these people. I've looked online and, and on LAS, I, I asked LAS for some information and um, they said that is an issue. That, that there's yeah. not enough information on these candidates. And so I feel like either I vote blindly, you know, just because of the person's profession, but one of them doesn't even have a profession listed or, um, or I don't vote at all. And that just, seems to not be a good idea either. So. Yeah, I know. It, it, for AirTalk listeners, we don't want to leave a blank space when we can vote. I know, I know exactly what you mean. And for the Los Angeles County, for the Central Committee, we actually have a primer on that. Um, but we don't have that for Orange County. That's something as we expand with each election. Um, certainly hopeful that we would have that in the future. But you're right, Winona, there just is... Um, there is so little information, and you know, much of what I expect moves the needle in those races are those slate mailers, which people pay for a position on it, and the parties will sometimes send them out, or um, labor organizations or other groups. Um, there are even ones that you know purport to be from particular, like public safety group, which is really just someone collecting money to put a name on a slate mailer that's sent out to a household. So um, you're not alone, Winona. Uh, the information on those county central committees of the parties, very, very difficult. Brian, in West Hollywood, good to have you with us. So what are you still wrestling with on the current ballot? Yeah, the judges. I do not know who they are, what they are. What, what, you know, what, what the qualities that they bring, their strengths, their weaknesses, uh, very little information is available, and I'm in somewhat of a quandary as to who I should select for each category. The most visited site of our voter game plan, Brian, is Los Angeles County Superior Court judges for just the reason that you said. So if you go to com slash vote... Our staff spent considerable time, because we know this is a big draw to the website. We get a lot of traffic for this. If you go there, you'll find the most detailed information on the judges that's available anywhere. Now, the L.A. Times, their editorial board, I believe they talk with the candidates and they issue their endorsements. But um, at our voter game plan, LAS.com slash vote, you'll find information on all of those judges' candidates for L.A. County Superior Court. And I think you'll find that a tremendous help. Again, that drives that drives more visits to LAS.com slash vote than anything else we do on the site, including, you know, much higher profile races, because there's more information available on those higher profile uh, races. 866-893-5... Well, actually, we have to wrap up the segment. I'll take one more call real briefly. Ian in Pasadena, good to have you with us, Ian. Uh, hi, Larry. I'm, uh, I'm fairly frustrated with the, uh, the top two primary system, um, particularly as regards to the Senate race, but it, it sort of goes back to um, what the other caller was speaking about with the presidential race. Um, it, it's, it's awful having to choose between either being strategic with a vote or casting a protest vote and knowing that you're not going to have a, a whole lot of effect. Um, I would really prefer to have ranked choice voting um, so that we can more accurately measure public opinion. 
All right, Ian, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Something that, of course, has been a topic of consideration, ranked choice voting, which we don't have time to go into how all that works, but we've done a number of segments on it over the years. Uh, would be very different approach than the top two primary system that Ian referenced. And Sarah in Santa Monica said, I decided to change my vote after filling out my ballot. I didn't realize I didn't have to get a whole new ballot. My registrar told me I was allowed to cross out my vote and to change it. Sarah, thank you so much. It's Air Talk on LAist 89.3. Just a reminder again, visit LAist.com slash vote. You'll see all the work that's been done. We have a, a voter guide for Orange County this time around, where we got a couple of supervisorial races, school board races that are there, some major measures in Huntington Beach that's been highly controversial in that city. You see all that there for Orange County course for Los Angeles County as well. Coming up, we talk about wine fraud. Obviously, any industry where there are huge amounts of money that are at stake uh, is in the the high-value wine industry. Fraud follows. We'll talk about how that's played out over the years with the author of Vintage Crime, a short history of wine fraud when we come back in 90 seconds. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center, presenting the world premiere of Ghost Waltz by Oliver Mayer, a bold original recovery of Juventino Rosas, one of Mexico's most significant composers. Follow Rosas from his father's early death to his friendship with ragtime genius Scott Joplin, now on stage through June 2nd. Tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. So glad to have you with us on Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Joining me now is the author of Vintage Crime, A Short History of Wine Fraud. Rebecca Gibb is a wine journalist, the author of The Wines of New Zealand, and a master of wine. Rebecca, good to have you with us. What is the master of wine designation? You know, so many of us are familiar with uh, sommeliers, but what is master of wine? Yeah, hi there. Um, Yes, the master of wine is considered one of the world's greatest qualifications to have. It's a trade qualification and there are around 417 of us in the world. So more people have been to space than have become a master (laughs) of wine. And you have to pass a number of incredibly difficult exams, both tasting and theory. And then you have to sit an essay at the end, write an essay at the end. And yeah, after uh, six years, I finally was given wow. those two little letters at the end of my name. Well, congratulations. <laughs> you love the history of wine. That is so clear in all the chapters of a vintage crime where you give us so much historical background uh, on wine. But uh, I, was, I was, it was so interesting to see that the whole origins of particular types of wine have have been fraught and subject of debate and battles for centuries. 
yes, wine fraud's been going on as long as wine's been, as blind has existed. Um, people have been, well, initially people were trying to make wines taste a lot better because let's face it, they didn't have the technology that we do have now and the know-how. So, you know, back in Roman times, people were adding all sorts, basically just to camouflage what had effectively become <laughs> vinegar. So, yeah. So, but today we have obviously lots of, lots of, lots of know-how we learn like what's actually going on in a fermenting vat of wine but yeah back then they didn't so you know yeah there's been all sorts of fiddling and and skullduggery going on in the wine industry for centuries and and let's talk about amelioration of wine versus Mm -hmm. adulteration you know what are we talking about with each of those so this all becomes in sort of intense. So people often, um, what we use the word, I use the word ameliorated in my book. So people are actually trying to make what's effectively not a very good wine taste better. So whether it was, you know, a kind of a weedy, thin, insipid red wine in the 1930s in Burgundy, uh, you know, they might have added a bit of wine from Algeria or the south of France, or the Chardonnay de Pape to make it a bit more robust and burly with some real good fruit. That was sort of, that's, but then it all comes down to adulteration. What, what is the intent of what is the intent of the person there? If the intent is to deceive, to commit fraud, therefore you've got adulteration. That often, in in certain cases, it can be harmful to the drinker. And how often is it that you get amelioration, where you're getting blending to sort of make up for a deficiency in a particular year's harvest, for example, and that's not disclosed. You know, people are, you know, uh, particularly for higher-end wines, people are very attentive to uh, all kinds of facets of of that particular bottle of wine. But how much of of, uh, deception is going on? It's a tricky one, this, because you have all sorts of blending going on that's actually legal. So you have all these fancy laws, say, in France and blending, whether you get well, some of the most expensive wines in the world from Bordeaux, for example, they are a blend of three or four different grape varieties from certain different sites. Now, that's been sort of that's been put into law is legal and that's it's considered the right thing to do but then if you go to another region and you're only allowed to use one grape variety and that's written in the laws and then somebody um around the backs put adding a little bit of something extra and not telling anyone well that's considered fraudulent in the eyes of the law but you know what it might make it might make a better wine so it's all it's it's slightly the the lines are slightly blurred here (laughs) Well, and and uh, you get into the issue of what's called terroir, which I didn't realize is a fairly recent concept for um, origination of of wines. You know, it, it, first of all, what is the definition of that? What is the definition of terroir? Yeah. Well, it depends depends on who you are, but <laughs> my 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 definition is um, having a sense of place. So. It's the influence of putting it in, in the vineyard, for example. It's, it's the, the soil that the vine is grown in, the grape variety that is planted in the ground, the, the climate, the weather, and actually the input of the human being of the vineyard or the winemaker who is actually having that influence on that plant. Um, that, for me, is terroir. And I never thought that that the human touch in that was really a part of that, how, how it was considered. So it's the totality. Oh, totally. Well, you know, if you don't, if you don't have a, if you don't have a man or a woman tending that grapevine, you ain't. Oh, I'm picking the grapes. There will be no wine at the end. So it, you can't have, you can't have terroir without the intervention of a human being. 
So what what um, what do we see particularly in the high end of wine? Because we've had scandals of of you know wines that have been totally different than purported and and adulteration of all different kinds, and then sold at very high price points to scam the public. How common is that kind of fraud? Well, look, I, I, in the collector today, wine fraud is is mo- the most publicized cases are about collector fraud where people have replicated a very expensive bottle of wine and they've manipulated the labels or the corks and they have pretended that what's the contents of the bottle are actually something much more expensive than they are or they might have swapped out um might have swapped a label from say a 1945 moulin rothschild which is considered an amazing vintage and they might the contents might actually be 1941 now you can uh, how how prevalent is it it's very difficult to gauge uh you know until the fraud bureaus come along and actually rumble somebody it can go undetected for a really long time uh, there have been some really big cases, uh, one mm. going back just a few years that was based right here in Los Angeles that was a, a huge case of, of fraud involving California wines, particularly Pinot Noir. Uh, absolutely. There has been quite a, there have been quite a few cases in California. Well, obviously, California is the, you know, accounts for 90 percent of the U.S. wine production. So, you know, if it's, if there's going to be a wine fraud, it's going to happen in California. Um, so, uh, no, but a few, just a few years ago, there were, well, there were, there were instances of uh, uh, an Indonesian gentleman who, um, who overstayed his student visa and became part of the wine collector's circle if you'd like and he started buying up fine wines from auction um, but he he was he was actually selling wines on an auction that actually were not what they said they were um, in some instances they certainly were but there were lots of cases when when the FBI eventually um, raided his house it was found to be a wine factory there were wine bottles on the treadmill there were wax capsules it was basically he had all the equipment to make uh, you know a a very rare wine from Bordeaux and they found his recipes which included some Californian wines some Bordeaux wines um they're all blended in together and yeah he was he went away for 10 years and he was the first person ever in the U.S. to be um convicted for wine fraud do you do you think that he thought that he's just most of the people buying were storing those wines, not actually drinking them, so he'd never be found out? What what do you suspect was going on in his mind? I suspect that he didn't believe that people's palates were discerning enough to actually be able to detect whether or not what was in that bottle was what it was expected to be, because the wines that he was making were so rare that it's very unlikely that anybody had 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 a real sense of what that wine should actually taste like. And wine is a living thing. So, you know, five years ago, it could taste very different to what a wine tastes like today. And how would you go back to the seller and say, hey, this didn't taste like what I expected and, you know, get a mm. refund that didn't quite work that way? Well, doesn't quite work that way. Yeah, the the onus is the onus. Unfortunately, is on the buyer to prove that what is in what the contents of that bottle are aren't what they say they are. Um, and obviously, the people who are generally buying all these really expensive bottles of wine at auction tend to be white, 
middle-aged wealthy businessmen who are don't like to be you know don't like to be duped and if they do feel if they do realize that they have been scammed they don't it's very rare that anyone will come out and admit it we're talking with Rebecca Gibb, a wine journalist, master of wine is her title, and author of Vintage Crime, A Short History of Wine Fraud. If you have questions for her about her book, we're at 866-893-5722. We'll be back in just one minute. Rebecca Gibb author of Vintage Crime, A Short History of Wine Fraud. She was just talking about that case going back to the aughts uh, here in Southern California. And the man who was um, um, found guilty of that fraud, just one of the auctions alone in 2006, you know, this is uh, during dot-com boom days, sold nearly $25 million of wine. That was in one auction Uh, Just an extraordinary uh, amount of money involved. Uh, And um, also just looking at at the amount of fraud that goes on, you know, there are are experts that that will say with particular types of high-demand wines that are particularly valuable, um, you can have, for example, a pre-1980 Burgundy. Uh, One of the experts who testified in in that trial said uh, 80% could be counterfeit of that. I mean, Rebecca Gibb, that's extraordinary. It really is. Uh, it really, I, I, I totally agree. Um, I would, I think that it was for a really long time, the wine industry has been a really chummy, elitist circle, especially the fine wine world. And people didn't like to call other people out because often collectors would become friends with the auctioneers who were actually the ones verifying these wines. And thus they were unlikely to call it out. I also wonder about a conflict of interest. Yeah, I wonder too about the psychological effect because you mentioned about if if you're going to be uh, opening a bottle of something very rare that you know no one anybody knows has actually tasted before and you don't really know what to expect. There's a whole psychological aspect of of drinking wine, and I wonder, as a master of wine yourself, if you can speak to that. How our expectations play into um, what we think we're tasting. Absolutely. I mean, there have been quite a number of studies done where people have tasted wines, um, they've tasted them blind, which means without being able to see what the wine is, being able to see the label, and they've made their judgments on it. And then when people actually see the label, if they see a bottle of wine, uh, the same bottle of wine, and then they found out it's $50, or they find out it's five dollars immediately their perceptions and qualitative quality judgments change based on the price of those wines so when it comes to based on price price rarity value there certainly is something psychological going on into in that's that is definitely delivers into the glass and into your mouth what you think you what you're expecting and that's probably true with food as well. It's probably the same psychology. If you're told, oh, you know, this particular mushroom is very rare and has, uh, you know, just a wonderfully delicate taste that you're not going to find, you know, you, you're going to then that first bite, you're, you're going to probably perceive that very differently if you think it's a run-of-the-mill rush, a mushroom. Absolutely. And I think that with, with these fine wines, every, fine wines, there is a sense that, 
you know you need to even if you you need to be able to show that you can appreciate fine things and this connoisseurship I mean this connoisseurship which I write about even going back to the early 19th century this connoisseurship really it really cements who you are in society when food and drink become almost a, a sort of a symbol of your social status if you know what's good uh, if you know what's good in food if you know it's in the best restaurants if you know what's good in your glass then you're seen to some somehow be a better person have greater social standing <laughs> in society yeah it's, it's almost as though it's a, a sign of of Sarah of character though I, I I did want to ask you though about whether you think law enforcement and the industry has become more vigilant are they better at detecting fraud or or do you think we're just in the same place that we've been for decades really good question there's very different sectors within the wine trade and if we're looking at so the wine collectors you know wine has become a fine wine has become a real commodity you know it's almost become like a blue chip asset because more the as, as a finite a finite policy you can only get so many bottles of you know a special bottle of white, a red burgundy from a specific vineyard made by a specific producer and likewise you can only get certain bottles of like Chateau Latour or Muto Rostrail from Bordeaux so but the global market has grown for it so that's why prices have spiraled and going back to your question that's why you know that's suddenly wine has become an asset class and that's why prices have spiraled. That's why people now want to fake them. And it has, for a while, the authorities lagged. But now they've caught up. And now they're, and they are catching up. And I think the industry has become a lot more vigilant since the likes of Rudy Kurnia one, who was this gentleman, this Indonesian gentleman who was imprisoned um, for, for wine fraud uh, for 10 years. I think there has been a lot more. Uh, people are no longer turning a blind eye to it. And there are now wine the major wine auction houses now have wine authenticators such like ah. just the, like yeah, art authenticators FBI. yeah pardon sorry just like art authenticators for visual art when it's sold at auction absolutely there are a lot of parallels between fine wine and fine art and there are certainly lots of cases in fine art where the experts have had the wool pulled over their eyes and similar in in very similar ways to um yeah to the, the wide world and in fact there's there's there, was, there has been some there's been on some instances of um wine uh, of art fraudsters who have come out of prison and then they started working for the authorities or they've started written books to say this is how i did it and now this Rudy Kearney one he's now out of prison and he's now in hong kong and singapore and he's putting on fake wine dinners and in, in audaciously and openly and he's saying to people bring your bottles of what you think are genuine oh and i will make a fake to try and, oh. and you just have to see which one you like best rebecca gibb thank you for joining us this all is fascinating and mind-blowing vintage crime a short history of wine fraud thank you so much for joining us for air talk today on la is 89.3 npr's here and now is up next i'll be back with you tomorrow morning at nine right after morning edition 
The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps.